This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Hi, everyone. My name is Terry Friedlander. I'm a medical oncologist here at the Cancer Center, focusing on prostate cancer and other urologic cancers. I'm going to talk today about hormone therapy for prostate cancer and really managing the side effects. So what I wanted to do is talk about um, hormone therapy, specifically testosterone, which is really the root of um, what we're discussing here. Um, I think most people know that testosterone is um, helpful in the sense that it it, um, keeps men fit. It increases muscle tone. It decreases body fat. It helps support strong bones. Unfortunately, it also promotes prostate cancer growth. And blocking testosterone is uh, sort of the mainstay of treatment for men who have um, localized or even advanced prostate cancer. And this causes a lot of problems. Um, I think there are a number of things that folks don't think about with regards to um, prostate cancer and hormone therapy, which include the fact that testosterone really supports libido, that it also uh, keeps energy levels high. It uh, promotes sort of cognitive uh, mental health well-being and also supports emotional well-being. Um, and when we when we lower testosterone, we really affect these. So I think many um, there are many new agents, and you may have heard about some of them today. So men are living longer. The big question I have is, are, are men living better? Um, and so, you know, I have sort of four major things that I think about when I talk about hormone therapy for men with prostate cancer. And the first is that um, while each individual agent, whether it's injected, whether it's a pill, might have specific side effects unique to it, the vast majority of the problems from hormone therapy are due to low testosterone, essentially male menopause. Um, there are both short-term side effects and long-term side effects, and it's helpful to think about those. Some of the side effects might be silent, like heart disease or increased diabetes risks or others that may not be as as obvious as, say, hot flashes or weight gain. I mean, really a comprehensive approach to diet, exercise, both physically and cognitively, thinking about bone health and supplements and things like that are really critical. And I actually emphasize the role of a primary care physician here in terms of helping men, um, helping manage men with prostate cancer, as well as others, which I'll talk about a little bit later in this talk. So what are the side effects? I think the short-term side effects most men will be familiar with, like hot flashes, fatigue, loss of libido, mental fogginess. But the longer-term side effects include weight gain as well as muscle loss, uh, reduced bone density, which is a risk for fracture as as men um, age, um, uh, depression, heart disease, and diabetes risks, as well as the cognitive decline I mentioned already. Um, So just to think about each of these side effects individually, how do we mitigate hot flashes? Well, first of all, dressing in layers can be helpful. Um, Having a fan or air conditioning in the bedroom can be helpful. Avoiding alcohol, caffeine, spicy foods are some evidence to support this. I think exercise um, is very important. You'll hear me mention that a few more times in this talk. Um, And also talking with your spouse or really with friends or family who've been through menopause to sort of understand how they dealt with it. And I think this is where cancer support groups can be very helpful. Medically, venlafaxine or paroxetine are both antidepressants that actually have a, a decent effect in preventing hot flashes. About half of men get very good effect when they take this. Um, I usually only prescribe it if they have more than, you know, five or 10 hot flashes a day. Um, gabapentin works okay. This is a neurologic medication that causes some somnolence, but can be helpful for some men if the antidepressants don't work. In terms of fatigue, weight gain, and muscle loss, This is all about diet and exercise. And so in terms of exercise, that's both cardiovascular exercise, excuse me, as well as weightlifting or anaerobic exercise. And I think stretching is incredibly important for for really for everyone as as they start exercising. Um, 
just to keep joints uh, healthy and 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 fluid. In terms of diet, I think avoid, avoiding processed foods, avoiding white starches like those listed here, white bread, white pasta, et cetera, really important. Um, and increasing green vegetables and fruits, especially cruciferous vegetables. We're going to have talks from our, my colleagues in uh, epidemiology here today about some of the programs that we have here looking at diet um, and exercise in prostate cancer. And so you'll hear more about that today, or you may have already heard more about that. In terms of the mental fog, this is the probably the hardest um, area to um, to measure and to know how to fix. I think um, commonly reported problems are sort of visual mental slowing or slowed reaction times. This has been validated in tests, but also impaired memory and recall, forgetting where you put your keys or forgetting perhaps um, somebody's name who you just meant or just met. Um, the uh, what to do about it is not so clear. It does seem that exercise helps. And this is a, a, a quote from um, a, a recent study that suggests that um, exercise is protective against cognitive decline. Um, mental exercises, meaning crosswords, Sudoku, staying active, staying sort of involved in, 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 in life, I think is quite important as well. And I encourage people to be active that way, whether it's volunteering, continuing to work or, or other. Um, and then discussing treatment breaks, if that's feasible, if that's medically reasonable from the testosterone. In fact, there is a paradigm of intermittent testosterone therapy for men with a rising PSA that we usually recommend uh, principally to help men avoid uh, many of these side effects. Um, bone health is incredibly important. Um, when testosterone levels go down, the body uh, calcium gets leached from the bones. So what can you do about that? Well, exercise is incredibly important. I've mentioned that already. Calcium and vitamin D at the doses listed here. Um, checking vitamin D levels and checking bone mineral density tests or DEXA scans are quite important. And those can be done every six months or every two years, as you can see on the slide here. And then we have more advanced medicines like denosumab, or zoledronic acid, which are indicated for men with osteoporosis or for men who have castration-resistant um, prostate cancer to really help prevent fractures. Um, depression and sexual health, I think this is also a hard area to tackle. Um, I think men who get hormone therapy are increased risk for depression for a lot of reasons, both from having cancer, from losing their sexual prowess or their libido, um, and, and probably a direct effect of the hormones as well. Erectile dysfunction from radiation or surgery certainly contributes. I think talking with a urologist about treatment of erectile dysfunction is reasonable. Um, I actually think couples therapy can be very helpful to think about how, how you can remain intimate, even if you're not able to, uh, for example, have an erection. Um, exercise and cardiovascular health, I've mentioned a number of times, um, can be helpful. Antidepressants, they're both pros and cons. Some of them can reduce libido, so that can be a challenge. The UCSF Psycho-Oncology Service is extremely helpful for um, coping with a cancer diagnosis. Uh, the symptom management service is helpful for coping with a lot of the problems induced by cancer and by many of the agents that we um, use here. And I refer many, many of my men uh, in my clinic to, to those, those services. I think uh, prostate cancer support groups are another great way to talk to other patients about this and sort of see um, what they've learned and, and, and how to um, address that. Um, lastly, cardiovascular health, probably one of the most important topics here. Um, there are a number of studies that show higher risk for cardiovascular disease, meaning coronary artery disease and heart attacks, diabetes, as well as kidney dysfunction over time. I think monitoring cholesterol, blood pressure, blood sugar are incredibly important. Um, you can see the guidelines here for both for cholesterol and blood pressure. Diet and exercise, again, incredibly important for men who are getting hormone therapy, trying to limit the amount of hormone therapy if possible. And then following up with primary care physicians is really important. Sometimes I spend most of my visit talking about 
clinical trials, prostate cancer scans, et cetera. And we, we don't have a lot of time to focus on this, but it's probably just as important as the cancer care. Um, so I know that's a short talk. Um, it's a big topic, but I'm uh, happy to take any questions if you want to email them to me, um, terrence.friedlander at ucsf.edu. Um, and also my colleagues will help field questions now. Um, with that, I just want to say thank you and um, thanks for having me. Take care. Greetings, everybody. Uh, my name is Ben Breyer. I'm a, a reconstructive urologist at UCSF Health, and I'm super passionate about uh, prostate cancer survivorship, particularly urinary and sexual wellness. And my talk today is going to focus on urinary health and particularly incontinence uh, after prostate cancer therapy. So the the topic of urinary health i think is um maybe not one that when you're younger you'd be thinking about but it's it's an incredibly common thing and it is incredibly common after the therapies for prostate cancer um many of the things that we see in my clinic and ways that we help men uh the whole gamut of prostate cancer therapies uh, can be associated with some types of urinary issues, whether that be overactive bladder from say radiation therapy, uh, stress incontinence from surgery. And often we see complications related to multimodal therapy. And um, these, these are all things that we can absolutely help with and there's a lot of different options to help folks live better lives in the setting of having leakage. So a little bit about the bladder. Of course, the, the bladder's main job is to store urine and expel it uh, when it's time to do so. We're all, men are born with two sphincters. There's an involuntary sphincter that's sort of under your subconscious control and that lives between the prostate and the bladder. And then there's the voluntary sphincter. That's the one if you're standing at a urinal and you stop your pee flow, that's the voluntary sphincter. When you have a prostatectomy, it's the voluntary sphincter that's preserved and, and left behind. Um, that's also the sphincter that is most affected when you have radiation therapy. Um, and it's, uh, as you can imagine, it's a dynamic muscle. And so, when you have either a surgery where maybe different nerves and the muscle fibers can be damaged, or you have radiation therapy that helps kill cancer cells, it can also cause uh, fibrosis of the normal surrounding tissue. And so the, these things can get injured leading to, leading to leakage. Um, there's three main types of leakage. And I think the ones that we see most commonly in prostate cancer survivors are stress incontinence and urge incontinence. Urge incontinence is the type of leakage where um, you feel a very strong urge to go to the bathroom to pee and you can't get to the toilet in time. It just comes out. Um, and you can also have stress incontinence. That's exertional inc incontinence. So you have a full bladder, you run up a set of stairs or you pick up a grandchild and you squirt some pee. Some men have a combination of both. Overflow incontinence is when you have just a ton of urine in your bladder and you're not able to expel the urine efficiently. 
And that can lead to uh, almost like a topping off where small amounts of urine with particularly with exertion or falling asleep uh, come out of your body. So again, most of my patients are prostate cancer survivors, uh, but we also have patients that have uh, a, a variety of metabolic or neurologic conditions as well as trauma that we treat that have leakage. And I think it's a I think it's becoming more an appreciated um, just how profoundly urinary health can impact someone's mental health and their lifestyle. You know, um, here we list the mental distress, the social restrictions, the inconveniences. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, hey, I had to pack a whole nother suitcase on my trip to Europe because I was so concerned about pads and whether I would have enough garments to protect myself. So the, these things can really limit people. Uh, it's expensive. It's also um, certainly something that can keep some people from being more social because of embarrassment. And that, that's, that's you know, problematic. There are a number of ways that we can manage and improve leakage. The first step is always behavioral. And this involves uh, things such as maintaining a healthy weight, uh, diet and exercise, increasing your overall muscle mass will oftentimes help with leakage. Um, You can be strategic about when you consume fluid. Uh, Sometimes you can drink a little less and you'll leak less. Let's say you're going to go play golf. Maybe you won't drink as much right before you go play golf. Certain foods we eat, coffee, alcohol, spicy foods, citrus, these things are bladder irritants and can cause more overactivity. Um, I think the beyond diet and exercise, doing pelvic physical therapy, Kegel exercises, these are sort of a mainstay of treatment. Again, there's very little downside to doing them. Um, and then we do have some drugs that can help with uh, stress incontinence. Imipramine is a drug that we use in, in kids that wet their bed, but also in adults. It's FDA approved for post-prostatectomy leakage. It relaxes the bladder and also tightens the bladder neck. And in mild cases of incontinence can be um, helpful. So here, here, beyond behavioral things, here are some of the other management strategies. Again. Kegel exercises, pads, diapers, penile clamps, which I'll talk about, different types of catheters, and surgical options. So, you know, I think especially for mild leakage, pads often could be the best approach in addition to behavioral therapy. Um, Downsides to pads, uh, again, they're expensive. Medicare doesn't cover them. Uh, it can also lead to skin irritation and just, just uncomfortable feelings of, of being moist. Um, penile clamps are another option. This is, again, this is a non-surgical option. It's inexpensive. It's discreet. The scenario that my guys tend to do best with is, say, 
you want to go lift weights, you're going to wear your clamp, you'll be dry for an hour and a half, no problem. Downside of, to a clamp is you can't wear it for prolonged periods of time, it can cause skin damage. Uh, but if you want to be perfectly dry for a few hours, and you're trying to avoid surgery, a penile clamp can be quite a good option. And these are on Amazon. I always encourage my patients to just look it up on Amazon. Uh, there's patient reviews. We actually wrote an article re reviewing patient reviews of Amazon clamps. And there's a, a thing called a Wisner clamp. That seems to be the most comfortable and popular. Um, but uh, clamps are a reasonable option. Um, another option is catheters. These tend not to be as good. Uh, indwelling catheters, that's one that goes inside the penis and into the bladder. Not as good because they tend not to be super comfortable and then they lead to infection and they can also lead to tissue damage. External, external catheters, these are called condom catheters or Texas catheters. These are um, reasonable approaches if a guy has profound incontinence, but sometimes they... Um, they slip off, especially depending on how you're built. If you have a big penis, they work well. But if you're heavier or you have a shorter penis, the condom can often fall off and it can make a mess. Um, but that works for some men. So there's two main surgical approaches if you end up going that route. Uh, one is called a sling, and that's a little little mesh, a little plastic mesh hammock that sort of resuspends the urethra and create, recreates the relationship between your sphincter and your bladder that you had before. And then the other is a, a little device that's inserted into your, around your urethra called an artificial urinary sphincter. The, this, again, both of these surgeries, they take about 80 minutes to complete. You go home the same day. So it's come and go surgery. Um, I would say in general, when we think about who's a good candidate for these kind of things, for the sling, it's the guy that has mild leakage. So anywhere from one to three pads a day. Um, and for the most part, these are successful. Typically, cite a success rate around 75%, meaning you get down to a safety pad that's essentially dry. None of the surgical options do we ever guarantee, hey, you're going to be perfect. You're going to be perfectly dry. It just, it works out that way for some, some, some percentage of patients, but it's difficult to predict who exactly is going to get perfectly dry. So um, side effects to the sling, it's important to know you really can't do something like yoga or anything where you're going to do lunges for the first three months after surgery, because you don't want to dis disrupt the sling. Um Things like infection and erosion, those are very rare complications. Um, I think one thing that we do see is some pain in the thigh that can last up to you know, three to six months. In most men that go, you know, the vast majority of men that goes away, I would say about one in 200 patients, we need to take the sling out after a year because they still have some pain. But in general, this is a surgery that's really well tolerated. If you have radiation therapy, uh, it's not going to be an effective treatment. Um, again, other things, uh, these are just other things that would, you'd be, it'd be a contraindication to do just in terms of if you had urinary tract infections or bleeding disorders for really any surgery of the urinary tract. So the, the other option is this thing called the artificial urinary sphincter. 
This tends to work about 85% of the time, and it's applicable to people who have had radiation therapy. Um, I think it's definitely uh, just a bigger leap in someone's mind to have to operate this thing. But I can tell you, um, I see a lot of patients and my most happy patients are particularly the ones that are high volume leakers. So they're, they're five plus pads a day. You put one of these in and they then go down to a safety pad. These guys are absolutely elated to get their lives back. Downside to this thing is you do have to pump this little cuff. Uh, you have to pump this little pump every time you pee. Otherwise, the bladder works perfectly normal, just as it would. Basically, you squeeze this, it opens this cuff, allows the pee to come back, come out. And then um, with hydrostatic forces from the balloon, this thing refills and makes you dry. This thing's like a car, you know, it has a lifespan. Um, Median length of duration is about seven years in a non-radiated patient, five years in a radiated patient, and they can be revised. You know, we, you can do up to four or five revisions on people. Um, at some point, there is a, a time when it's not advisable to kind of go back in and replace. But in, in general, again, the surgery is about 80 minutes and well-tolerated. Side effects for this one, infection's a little more common in this. It's probably around 2%. Erosion is another thing that can occur, and that can happen um, uh, over time, uh, particularly in radiated patients, you know, on the order of, of 5%. Some, some men experience pain as well, uh, but that, that goes away uh, in, after the postoperative period. So um, in general, other contraindications to using, to having a sphincter implanted is if, if you are, you have limited dexterity, if you can't do buttons and, and these kind of things, you can't fasten buttons, the artificial sphincter is not going to be a good option for you. And the other important thing is if you have a bladder that doesn't accommodate urine, doesn't hold urine in terms of it has it's not compliant. And those are things that we can help figure out in the clinic um, based on your history and some testing that we can do. So again, I think um, leakage really does have profound impacts on people's quality of life. And it is something that many men suffer in silence, uh, which is unfortunate. I do think that we have many things that can help men feel better and improve their quality of life and improve leakage. And uh, we're always open to, to help you. If you need help, just come and see me. Thanks so much. Hello, everyone. My name is Sarah McCrory, and I'm a physician assistant in the urology surgical oncology department here at UCSF. I work specifically with prostate cancer patients and specialize in post-prostatectomy care and erectile dysfunction. I do work very closely with each and every patient to be sure their erectile goals are being met following their prostate cancer treatment. Erectile dysfunction is often the biggest concern in men following the treatment for their prostate cancer. It's defined as the difficulty or inability to attain and maintain an erection for su su sufficient for satisfactory sexual activity. As you can see, the erectile nerve bundles are located alongside the prostate here in yellow 
and can be affected by prostate cancer treatments like radical prostatectomy and radiation therapy. Each of these treatments affect the nerves differently, but have similar long-term outcomes. Surgery with radical prostatectomy affects the erectile nerve bundles in varying degrees. By taking either a complete nerve sparing, partial nerve sparing, or non-nerve sparing approach, a surgeon takes the size and location of the prostate tumor into consideration when determining whether or not they would be able to safely spare a patient's erectile nerves, while also successfully treating the cancer, which is our first priority. It's important to note that even in the case of complete nerve sparing surgery, the nerve bundles are still affected and will go through a period of recovery, but this approach still has a great success for good erectile return, either spontaneously or with assistance. Some key factors and considerations that could affect erectile return postoperatively are your age. 75-year-old nerves are not as young and healthy as 55-year-old nerves. Your baseline function, whether or not you had any level of ED prior to treatment, and the surgical nerve sparing approach that was used during your prostatectomy. Of note, your seminal vesicles are removed along with your prostate at time of surgery, and in doing so, you will no longer produce any seminal fluid or ejaculate. This is known as a dry orgasm and can be very different for many men. There are focal cancer treatment options like ablation, which can lower the risk of ED, but this is only appropriate in certain cases. Your erections will recover slowly after prostatectomy over a two to three year period with the greatest recovery often seen in the second year post-surgery. Keep in mind that all men recover at different rates and require differing interventions at different times. Radiation to the prostate has similar erectile dysfunction risks as it can also damage the erectile nerves. Radiation also affects the seminal vesicles again, potentially leading to those dry orgasms. The considerations for the degree of loss of erectile function with radiation are similar to that of prostatectomy, with age and baseline function being key factors, as long as along with the extent of the radiation field. Again, there are more focal radiation options that can possibly reduce this risk, but they may not be appropriate in all cases. The effect of radiation on erections tends to not be immediate, but often causes a decline in function gradually over a few years, making the risk of ED in both prostatectomy patients and radiation therapy patients very similar. Recovery and erectile rate of return varies widely in all men and may require differing interventions at different times. There's not a lot of concrete evidence to support the use of regularly scheduled oral medications for erectile rehab. However, these medications do offer benefit for on-demand use and can over time help prevent possible atrophy of penile tissue when compared to no intervention at all. Any promotion of blood flow to the penis is good for long-term recovery and, let, and getting that blood flow going is our goal. I find that every patient's expectations and goals are different regarding their treatments, and we do tailor our treatment plans to best suit each patient's needs. How far one may choose to go with treatment for their ED is different from person to person. There are many options for erectile dysfunction treatment, and some of these can be used together or interchangeably. Today, I will touch on oral medications, the vacuum erectile device, penile injections, urethral suppositories, and the penile implant. The most common treatment for ED is oral medications. Medications like the little blue pill or Viagra, as well as Cialis and Levitra, stimulate blood flow to the penis to help cause an erection. Because these medications are taken orally, they can have systemic or overall effects like headache, flushing, or upset stomach. 
There is also a small possibility of vision changes and possibly even blue tinted vision that is specific to Viagra alone. These side effects are typically short-lived, but can be bothersome to some men. In those cases, we tend to move on to non-oral medication treatment options. There's also some evidence to support that taking these medications, even if they don't cause an erection initially, could help nerve recovery over time and prevent atrophy of the penile tissue. If a daily medication is preferred, we will sometimes recommend a low dose of daily Cialis with as-needed on-demand use of a higher-strength oral medication. Many men who are post-prostatectomy will see a gradual improvement in response to these medications with time, while men who are post-pradiation may not need these medications up front, but with decline of function, they may require them or at higher doses. If there's no progress in erectile response, we can consider adding in a vacuum erectile device. This is a cylindrical external device that uses suction to bring blood flow to the penis and uses a compression band at the base of the penis to help keep that blood flow in place. This often requires a period of practice to get a satisfactory response and is best ordered through a medical device representative. A vacuum device is a good option for many men and can be used in combination with oral medications or alone. This device can also assist with any possible penile shortening that occasionally occurs after treatment. Penile injections are a highly effective option for ED treatment. It does require teaching and often a period of titration to find which dose and strength works best for you. There are several compounds and strengths in medication which are referred to as bimix, trimix, and quadmix. These medications are not found in typical pharmacies and are ordered through compounding pharmacies. Men will learn to self-inject medication perpendicularly in the side of the mid-shaft of the penis. Medication goes right to the source to cause an erection and does not typically cause any systemic side effects. Most men are pleasantly surprised with the minimal pain or discomfort when doing the self-injection. Few men fail this option, which makes it an excellent treatment choice for many men that don't tolerate oral meds or failed previous options. This is a preferred method of erectile dysfunction treatment in men with non-nerve sparing prostatectomies, as oral medications have a very low possibility of causing good erectile response. If a patient isn't quite ready to try injections, some men prefer to try Muse, which is a dissolvable medicated urethral suppository that you insert into your urethra. As it dissolves, the medication again works locally with sexual stimulation to cause an erection with fewer systemic side effects. A surgical option for ED is a penile prosthesis. This is often reserved for men who failed more conservative options. The implant is put in place by surgical specialists in our general urology department. This device is implanted into the penis with a pump that is placed into the scrotum that activates and deactivates the device. Superficial nerves are spared with this surgery, maintaining good sensation. However, there may be some loss in penile length associated with this procedure. It's a whole new world after prostate cancer treatment, and it's our job to help you navigate the effects of that treatment. One thing to remember is that every person in every relationship is different regarding the importance of an erection with their intimate relationships. Your sex life should be based on what you and your partner mutually define as sexually satisfying, which may or may not include penile penetration. Some will find the vibrators can be used to effectively cause orgasms. Considerations in gay men may also differ, especially in those who typically receive penetrative sex, who no longer have prostate stimulation with that penetration. Loss of ejaculation can also have a psychological effect on men. 
even when orgasm still occurs. Navigating these changes can be difficult and maintaining open and intimate communication with your partner can help maintain an excellent sexual relationship through the course of treating your ED. You are not alone. While I can discuss ED and treatments and experiences with you in detail, it often helps to hear from men just like you who are going through or who have gone through the effects of ED and various treatments. UCSF sponsors support groups in sexual intimacy as well as support groups specifically for gay men. Please reach out to your providers for more information and to be put in contact with these support groups. While it may seem daunting at first, just know that your treatment teams are here to help you with your erectile function goals after prostate cancer treatment, and we'll do whatever we can to ensure you get the erectile return you desire. Our UCSF website has excellent resources regarding ED and more in-depth literature on the treatment options you've heard here today. I'd encourage you to take a look, and thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.